Good morning, everyone. This is Jess. And this is Jess. <laughs> and we would like to welcome you this morning. We have a very special preacher today. He's Paul, and he normally serves behind the scenes, but today he's standing up the front and preaching to us. So as many of you are probably aware from my many posts on our Facebook group, I learned a lot from the Growing Younger Conference that a few of us went to as a team. One of the things that really stood out to me from that conference was that when we invest in the young people and the young families in our church, that it's not just the youth that grow, it's actually the whole church that grows together. Um, and I think that's really exciting. I think we're really blessed to be part of a church that invests in the young people. Um, and speaking of investing in young people, uh, we are having our first combined youth social again. The sheriffs have opened up their home in Bowen Mountain so that the youth can go up there and watch church together next week and enjoy some good food and I promise there will be a fire to keep you all warm and toasty. So please register with me if you are interested in going because we do need to stay under the 20 person limit. So send in your interest as soon as possible and we're looking forward to hanging out as a group together. We hope you, that you enjoy the program and enjoy Paul's message. Hi everyone, it's great, it, it's great to see you through a camera. Well, it's about as near as we can get anyway at this point. So thank you for, thank you for tuning in for, us, for another Sabbath. So physical evidence for a God who is worth knowing. So I trained as a scientist, I work in IT, I spend most of my spare time playing around with AV gear in a service capacity. Thing is though, how did I get, end up here? How did I get here? What made me so utterly convinced that God exists and would be willing to spend my life serving him and doing my best to lead others to him? The other question is, what brought me back into Christianity after, after you could call it, the escapades of my youth? The answer is science and engineering and the awesome creation that surrounds us from the very large to the very small. Looking at what we have learned from science, all creation declares the glory of God and points to his handiwork in everything. From the very small and very complex to the absolutely unfathomably large and complex. Nothing in creation is simple. So that then leads to a few other questions like, who is this God who created everything? Is he worth knowing? And why did he do what the Bible says that he did? But to start off with, let's take a look at the evidence for God that's out there. And <clears throat> we'll reference it according to what science is discovering. Science today is very, very secular. And it has been for the last couple of hundred years. It didn't used to be, but it is largely now. And it's as a result of a scientific method that only gives credence to what we can see. So it's observe, test, repeat. Observe, test, repeat. And that's how science progresses. But sometimes in this cycle, we observe things that we simply can't explain with our existing theories. Sometimes we see things that are so complex as to be impossible to come up with 
a solution other than a divine creator. So I'm going to touch on a couple of those. The first is molecular biology. So it's basically the makeup, of the chemistry bit of how life functions. So did you know that the longest word in the English language, if you can call it a word, um, it's more like a book, is the chemistry name for a protein. So that protein is called Tintin and it's in our muscles. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. If I did, it would take me roughly three and a half hours. Um, so it's got just shy of 200,000 characters in it. And it's, and the, the molecule itself has got 30,000 amino acids in it and over 244 discrete sections and a molecular mass of just over 3.8 million, AKA it's huge. Now, while it's huge though, by protein standards, it's not overly complicated. It's big, but it's not overly complex. So some of the most common processes in our cells are driven by extremely complex systems that have multiple bits. So one of the, one of the most common is the process by which our cells break down glucose in, with oxygen in order to make carbon dioxide and water, which kind of drives our systems because you have to, you, we get the oxygen from breathing, we get the glucose from the food we eat, Help, helps keep our bodies working. So in order to actually use this energy though, uh, we, we break the glucose down and we put the, our cells put the energy into a molecule called ATP. Now this is basically the energy storage and currency of our cells. It's what drives the, all of the various processes. And this molecule is this molecule needs to be recycled because otherwise you, our bodies don't make enough of this stuff so we have to keep recycling it. Your body recycles roughly its own weight in this stuff every day. Um, the enzyme that does this is, so, is a little bit weird to say the least. Um, it does something that's possibly the hardest thing to do in chemistry, which is using, uh, using physical pressure to drive a chemical reaction in an environment where there's a bunch of other stuff. So, and that bunch of other stuff tends to result in things happening that you don't want to happen. So it does, so, Technically, it uses a concentration gradient. Um, the simplified model of this enzyme is it looks like a water wheel. It looks remarkably similar to a turbine and generator setup that you would see in a power station. It physically changes shape in order to allow in order to join the two bits of the molecule back together and to top it all off it's only capable of spinning in one direction 
it's an absolute masterpiece of design that is essentially a miniature rotating turbine and generator setup that's a couple of hundred atoms long. <laughs> and this uh, and and this enzyme exists in pretty well every cell that exists. It, and in human cells, in particular the ones that are busier, like brain cells and things like that, it's there's often thousands of them. So let's go on to the next thing that is overly complicated about life. So the absolute masterpiece in terms of complexity is without a doubt the human brain. It's possibly the most complex structure in the universe. So your brain cells, uh, your brain is composed of about 100 billion neurons. The estimates are anywhere between 80 and 100 billion. Where things start to get really complicated is that every neuron is connected on average to about 10,000 others. And each of those connections pro is what your brain uses to process and store information. The estimate, and keep in mind this is an estimate and it changes regularly, <laughs> for human brain capacity is roughly two and a half petabytes. Now, to put that into perspective, that's about 5,000 laptops or roughly about four racks worth of hardware in a, in a computer data center. Now, in terms of processing power for a human brain, there's a brain simulation called Spinnaker, which they've been working with over in Europe. And it was recently upgraded um, 18 months ago to have a million processors in it. It's capable of simulating roughly 1% of our brains at any given point. This, this computer that's doing this draws about 100 kilowatts, so roughly the power output of a medium-sized car in order to simulate 1% of what our brain is capable of. So there's lots of things that we don't know about how our brain works. We struggle with working out how it stores data. We struggle with working out how it processes data. But one thing that is definitely clear is that our brains know our bodies really, really well. Have you ever thought about how many muscles your brain has to, do, has to instruct in order for you to raise your arm and close your hand and then open it again? Another example is our eyes. So because of the way our eyes hook into our heads, we have a blind spot in the middle of our vision. So our eyes just don't detect light that falls there. Our brains not only know about this, they actively compensate for it. So, it, so your brain overlays the two images from your eyes and uses the data from one to fill in the gaps in the other. In the event that you have one eye shut, so that information isn't available, 
your brain makes up stuff in order to fill in that gap. It takes, the, it takes data from around it and fills it in with the colour that it thinks is supposed to be there so that you don't see black spots in your vision when you close one of your eyes. Our brains are roughly 2% of our body mass and they use 20% of our body's total energy budget. So, and what's even weirder is that thinking harder doesn't seem to change it. Your brain uses about the same amount of energy whether you're sitting still asleep or whether you're thinking really hard. I think it's safe to say that the most extraordinary thing in the universe is inside your head. Looking at what we've learned from science, all creation declares the glory of God. From the very small to the unfathomably large. The Bible states in Genesis 1.31, in the second half of the verse, God saw that it was good when he finished making everything. God has created the most complex object in the known universe to do one thing, to experience love and, to be able, and to be able, for him to be able to share the love that he has with something else. He put so much time in design, into designing you, every part of you, your cells, your body and your brain, so that you can love him back. But love can't be forced. So he gave our brains the freedom of choice. The Bible also states in Romans 8.5, Thus we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We used our brains and we made the wrong choice. God didn't force us to love him and we chose not to. So this almighty, all-knowing, all-creating God chose to die for his creation who had chosen to reject and walk away from him just so that he could be in relationship with us again. Now that's a God worth knowing.